Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome you to this final in, uh, in our series of lectures at the School of Library Service this spring, and I want to thank all of you who've uh, participated in some of our earlier lectures for your support uh, this term. We have tried to um, put more pizzazz into our lecture series during this academic year. We've had a variety of, of speakers to join us from the field and from academia. And we have a special treat uh, this afternoon in that we have been privileged during the spring of having with us as a visiting professor Richard Landon, who for those of you who may not know him, has for the past 12 years been the Rare Books, uh, head of the Rare Books Library, the Thomas Fisher Library at the University of Toronto. We were especially pleased because he was our first choice to replace Terry Ballinger while he took some time off on a sabbatical to think, uh, to write, and to travel to places like Chicago, which I understand is where he is this evening. We have had a growing rare books program, as many of you know. This program will only be enhanced by our new curriculum starting in September uh, of this year, where we will be more selective in the students that we bring to the School of Library Service. We will bring fewer of them and keep them longer. We will be looking for many more opportunities to place our students in internships in various kinds of situations in the tri-state area, and we'll be especially interested in placing those students who specialize in rare books and bibliography. I want to invite you in advance, those of you who can, to stay with us for a few minutes. We'll be having a reception in room 523 at the other end of the hallway following the lecture. Mr. Landon. Thank you. Uh, you'll be relieved, I hope, to hear that I don't have any slides. However, I do have props. I'm unable to discourse properly without props. And so I will pass round one in each direction a copy of the sixth edition of uh, the uh, Curzon's visits uh, to the monasteries of the Levant and a copy of the first edition of his Armenia, his two principal books, uh, both from the stacks of uh, Columbia University Library. And uh, if you find it necessary, you can read along. In the month of March 1837, a young English nobleman, already known in his native land for the insatiability of his appetite for the ancient manuscript records of the Middle East, and now uncomfortably astride a camel, approached the monastery of Suriani in the Natron Lakes region of Egypt. He had spent the previous night in another monastery in company with multitudes of ravenous fleas. Even the church, where he fled for safety on the recommendation of the monks, did not prove a sanctuary from the attacks of these impious uh, tormentors. He was now, now hospitably received by an old blind abbot 
and 14 or 15 monks who showed him a library room in a tower where several Coptic manuscripts were discovered. Most were on the floor, apart from a few which did duty as the coverings for large open jars which had contained preserves long since evaporated. And one of them was a superb manuscript of the Gospels in Coptic with commentaries of the early church fathers. The intrepid collector was allowed to purchase these vellum leaves, principally, he believed, because there were no more preserves in the jars. These unwieldy tomes were not, however, the real objects of his search. A French gentleman in Cairo had told him of an oil cellar containing manuscripts in Syriac, and particularly a book of the evangelists. The abbot, however, stoutly denied the existence of both books and cellar. The Englishman had taken a few preliminary precautions and produced from his stores a bottle of a pink, sweet, ardent spirit called Rosalio, and taking the abbot and a companion into his room, proceeded to ply them with little cups of Rosalio and little compliments. By and by, the face of the abbot waxed bland and confiding, and the explorer broached the subject of the oil cellar once again. There is no oil there, said the abbot. I'm curious to see the architecture of so ancient a room, said the collector, for I've heard that yours is a famous oil cellar. It is a famous cellar, said the other monk. Take another cup of Rosalio, said the collector. <laughs> ah, replied the abbot, I remember the days when it overflowed with oil. Let us go and see it, exclaimed the collector, and when we come back, we will have another bottle. The last argument prevailed, and the party descended to the oil cellar, a great vaulted room with many empty oil jars, but no manuscripts at all. Seizing a candle from one of the brethren, who had all followed them into the room, the collector discovered a narrow low door in one side of the room, and pushing it open, descended once again into a vaulted closet. He was immediately knee-deep in the loose leaves of Syriac manuscripts. After turning over leaves and digging into the loose parchment, the collector raised a cloud of fine, pungent dust and extracted four complete books. At this point, two of the monks, who had begun to dig industriously as well, pulled out from the mass a great manuscript. Here is a box, shouted the monks. Monks, A box, echoed the blind abbot. Bring it out, bring out the box. Heaven be praised, we have found a treasure. A treasure, a treasure, screamed the monks. Bring it out to the light. All rushed out of the room, leaving the collector in the dusty dark, but with several volumes rescued from the literary tomb. The treasure box was soon discovered to be nothing more than yet another large book, and the abbot and his companion returned to the collector's room to seek consolation in the promised Rosalio. When they were again relaxed, the collector began, You found no box of treasure in the vault, but behold, I am a lover of old books. Give them to me, and I will give you a certain number of piastres in exchange. By this arrangement, we shall both of us be contented, for the money will be useful to you, and I should be yet glad to carry away the books as a memorial of my visit to this interesting spot. Ah, uh, said the abbot, <clears throat> another cup of Rosalio, uh, said I, help yourself. Um, how much will you give, asked the abbot. How much do you want, said I. All the money I have with me is at your service. How much is that, 
he inquired. <laughs> Out came a bag of money into the agreeable sound of clinking gold coins. The bottle and the bargain were concluded. A snag developed, however, when all the Coptic and Syriac manuscripts failed to go into two camel bags, and the monks would not allow another parcel lest their brethren discover what it was and claim their share of the spoils. In this dreadful dilemma, the collector left behind a quarto volume because it was imperfect and lived to see it identified by the keepers of the British Museum as containing some lost epistles of St. Ignatius and dated A.D. 411, one of the earliest dated manuscript codices and a famous treasure indeed. This rather extended preamble serves to introduce the Honorable Robert Curzon, as he was known for most of his life, one of the most attractive figures in the annals of book collecting and author of one of the most charming of 19th century travel books, Visits to the Monasteries in the Levant, first published in 1849. Curzon was born on March 16, 1810, attended Charterhouse in company with Thackeray and Christchurch, Oxford between 1828 and 1830. He went down without a degree to be returned to Parliament for his family's constituency of Clitheroe in 1831. Even after conscientiously recording his vote against every stage of the Reform Bill, Curzon found his seat disfranchised in 1832 and happily withdrew from politics for the rest of his life. He then commenced his series of travels to Europe and the Middle East sometimes in company with his closest friend and fellow bibliophile, Walter Sneed. In 1841, Curzon was appointed private secretary to Sir Stratford Canning at Constantinople, and in 1854 uh, published Armenia. After being very ill with brain fever at Erezum, he returned to England in 1844 and busied himself with his collections and with Parham, the beautiful Elizabethan house of his family in Sussex. In 1850, Curzon married Emily Julia, the youngest daughter of Sir Robert and Lady Wilmot Horton, uh, the sight of whose mother had so captivated Byron. Uh, she walks in beauty like the night. And in 1870, on the death of his mother, he became the 14th Baron Zuch. His beloved wife died in 1866, and Curzon withdrew from society with his son Robin and his daughter Daria and lived out his life until August 2nd, 1873, amidst his books and manuscripts and what he referred to as his gym cracks, including suits of armor, old master paintings, thumb screws, Durer prints, alabaster boxes, and locks of the hair of King Charles the Martyr. It is, however, for his manuscript collections that Curzon has granted his prominent place in the great pantheon of collectors, and he was a real collector. That is, he acquired specific items for a particular purpose in a methodical fashion. His first purchases while a student at Christchurch included a 13th century Bible, and he developed as his objective uh, the illustration of the origin and progress of the arts of writing and illumination of, as he expressed it, distant nations and of ancient days. In 1849, there appeared a slim folio from the Shakespeare Press 
called Catalog of Materials for Writing, printed in an edition of only 50 copies, and in the preface of which, Curzon explains that his collection has been put at the disposal of biblical and other scholars and hopes that, quote, the possessor of these manuscripts may escape in some measure the imputation of folly, which is given to those bibliomaniacs who heap up accumulations of old books which they can neither use nor understand. Curzon was not himself a profound or even perhaps a very competent scholar. He had, however, attributes which are much more important for the collector, an agile acquiring mind, inquiring mind, a veneration for antiquity, a zeal which could overcome desert heat, dust, questionable food, fleas, bandits, the various scourges that beset the 19th century traveler, and in addition, what can only be adequately described as the collector's touch, sort of sixth sense, which enables a collector to evaluate correctly a manuscript or printed book by its appearance without detailed study and to pick the really important works from a large number of lesser interests but similar appearance. He was, in short, a member of that now sadly unfashionable and indeed almost extinct tribe, the amateur. As he explained uh, in Armenia, quote, this, as my bibliographical friends are well aware, is a peculiar art or mystery depending more on a general knowledge of the first aspect of an old book than a capacity to appreciate its contents. A book written on vellum implies a certain antiquity immediately recognizable by the initiated. If it does not appear to be ancient, it is then more than probable that it contains the works of some author of more than ordinary consideration to have made it worth uh, while to go to the expense and labor of a careful scribe and a material difficult in those days to procure. An illuminated manuscript on vellum, if not a prayer book, secures additional attention. Independent of its value as a work of art, it must be of some consequence to have made it worth illuminating. A large manuscript, as a general rule, is worth more than a little one, for the same evident reason that its contents were considered at the time when it was written to have been of some importance and deserving of more labor, time, and care than if it was just written out cheaply by a common scribe. Unsill writing, that is, a book written in capital letters, is much more ancient than one written in a cursive hand, and the most ancient volumes were generally large, square quartos. Manuscripts on paper, again, are sometimes of remarkable interest for their containing the works of authors then considered trivial and inferior, but now of much more value than the more ponderous tomes of the Middle Ages. <clears throat> These and other circumstances combined to make a cursory examination of one of these original hordes of bygone literature a task for which the learned student of some abstruse science or dead or dying language is totally incompetent. The translator <coughs> of an almost forgotten tongue, the laborious compiler of unpublished history, requires that the musty chronicles, the splendid illuminated volumes bound in gold and velvet, the crabbed, ill-written works of antique lore should be laid upon the table before him so that in the undisturbed silence of his study, surrounded with lexicons and modern books of reference, 
he may bit by bit extract the pith and winnow off the chaff from the venerable manuscripts of distant lands and other times. The bibliographical traveler who is to provide these precious relics for his careful use, who is to drag them from their dark recesses where they have lain undisturbed 500 or 1,000 years, has an entirely different task to fulfill. The professor would require months to look over each book one by one, to brush away the cobwebs, to ascertain by difficult and uncertain passages what the subject of those manuscripts might be, which had lost many pages at the beginning and end, and to satisfy himself at last that it was worthless, a conclusion to which another would arrive at the first glance. This power of immediately appreciating the value of ancient manuscripts in the manner above mentioned will be understood by those who are aware that such is the usual jealousy of the ignorant monks for that which they can neither use nor understand themselves, that it hardly ever happens that a stranger is permitted to take more than a general survey of the worm-eaten and dusty mass which lies in heaps upon the floor or is piled in the corners of the room which they call their library, but which they probably have never entered on any other occasion. In his own interleaved and profusely annotated copy of the catalog, uh, now in the British Library, Curzon extended the scope of his whole collection to include both earlier and later material. It would, he decided, have three divisions, each of which would contain about 200 specimens. The first included hieroglyphics, clay, clay tablets, engraved gems, and rolled manuscripts. Uh, the second included the manuscript codices, and the third division, early printed books. Curzon owned some very fine printed books. Uh, his not very defective copy of the Gutenberg Bible, that is 588 of 641 leaves, was broken up into single leaves by Gabriel Wells and issued with a preface by A. Edward Newton as, quote, a noble fragment in the 1920s. At the Zoot sale of November 9, 1920, it brought 2,750 pounds. Uh, Gabriel Wells charged uh, $150 for the better leaves and for damaged leaves $100, so you can easily work out arithmetically uh, the profit margin involved. He could also, uh, that Curzon could also illustrate the history of the printed book with the 1465 Lactantius of Swineheim and Panerts, 1475 Herodotus, the 1477 Antonio uh, Bettini, illustrated with copper plate engravings, the 1481 Landino edition of Dante, 1488 Homer, bound in full Morocco with the Zuch arms, 1493 Diernali Matisconense, printed on vellum, then one of two known copies, a colored Nuremberg Chronicle, 49 volumes of Debris Voyages, a He Bible of 1611, William Penn's The Christian Quaker, 1674, inscribed by Penn, quote, for my worthy cousin William Penn of Penn at Penn, an ancestral relative, Shakespeare's Poems of 1640 and the Third Folio, and a Baskerville Book of Common Prayer in an Edwards of Halifax vellum binding. 
Curzon's part one of his history included Henry VI pen case, an Egyptian ark of uh, 1550 BC, which he filled with tablets and seals and was fond of comparing to the Ark of the Covenant, a hollow wooden figure of Osiris containing a papyrus manuscript, and a whole series of papyrus rolls, both in their original rolled state and unrolled. Uh, Curzon's description of unrolling one would make a papyrologist blanch. However, it was the second part of his library, the manuscript codices, which was truly magnificent. Represented were Hebrew, Syriac, Arabic, Tartar, Turkish, Persian, Armenian, Hindustani, Burmese, Siamese, Cambodian, Abyssinian, Greek, Coptic, and Bulgarian. Uh, he later added examples in Chinese, Georgian, and Aztec, and of course, Latin. They included a Pentateuch roll in Hebrew, written on gazelle skins, which was one foot 11 inches wide and 160 feet long, a Codex Gospels of St. Matthew and St. Mark, very optimistically dated before 395 by Curzon, and uh, who then rather charmingly remarks in a note, the most ancient manuscript with a date hitherto discovered is one of uh, parts of the works of Eusebius in the Syriac language with the date of 411. It was once in my possession. Being ignorant of its extreme antiquity, I threw it away, but it is now in the British Museum. An Aztec manuscript known as the Zuch Codex, or Codex Natal, and reproduced in 1902 in facsimile, is perhaps the best known uh, of uh, the single manuscripts once in Curzon's possession. But the range and antiquity of Curzon's manuscripts is what remains remarkable. To own even single leaves today of manuscripts dating from the 5th to the 9th century is often beyond the capability of the most industrious and wealthiest of collectors. Curzon owned a group of them in their entirety, that is, complete manuscripts. And furthermore, it acquired them in the field, not from booksellers' catalogs. This simple fact gives to Curzon's collecting a whole romantic dimension missing from the careers of even the most assiduous of ordinary collectors. The Coptic monasteries of the Natron Lakes, to which Curzon was so powerfully drawn, were established in the second century AD by Coptic anchorites who retired from the world to pray contemplate and mortify their flesh. The Copts, considered to be the direct descendants of the ancient Egyptians, were among the earliest converts to Christianity. And the most famous of the Natrian recluses was Saint Macarius of Alexandria, a fourth century saint of exemplary self-denial. Curzon records as an instance of disciplined abstinence the story of a traveler giving Saint Macarius a bunch of grapes who, refusing to partake himself, sent it on to another brother, who sent it to a third, who in turn passed it on. Eventually, the grapes, having passed through hundreds of hands, came back to St. Macarius, who rejoiced at the proof of such abstinence, but still refused to eat the grapes, <coughs> which then seems reasonable. <laughs> Macarius founded a monastic order, still in existence in Curzon's time, whose rigid rules bound the monks to fast the whole year, except on Sundays and during Easter. 
By the 1830s, only four monasteries remained entire of the several dozens which had once lined the desert valleys and perched upon the rocky outcrops, and the number of monks was much depleted. Depleted, too, was their knowledge either of their own history or the manuscripts bequeathed to them, and Curzon commonly encountered ignorance and neglect. Curzon's own written accounts of his exploits in the Middle East in letters to his friend Walter Sneed and to others in his own journals, and finally, as the polished narrative of visits to the monasteries, are evocative, exciting, and very informative. Here is his account of his journey to the monastery of St. Catherine on Mount Sinai from a letter to Sneed dated March 1834. If I ever ride a camel or a dromedary again, may I be blank. I have torn all my clothes, spoiled my gun, rubbed several holes in my posteriors, and the sun has taken all the skin off my face. During my pilgrimage to Gebel el Tour, or as it is called by the good people in Europe, Mount Sinai. Like the children of Israel, I passed from Cairo through the Red Sea and jogged across the wilderness of Sintor many days, seeing nothing but sand and rock and the savage Bedouins who accompanied my camels. At last I got to the end of my journey, was pulled up through a window at the end of a long rope, and found myself surrounded by the good fathers in the monastery of St. Catherine. Now you must know that, Quote, I had heard of books and I longed to rescue from the shelf some sturdy tome. That's a quote from Dibden. So after remaining some little time in the monastery, I began to rummage about to see what I could devour. And at length found the library with, an old, with a curious old door inlaid with iron and about 1,500 manuscripts, original old books arranged on shelves around the wall. The first book I saw was the Gospels. <clears throat> a manuscript in Greek on vellum of the 10th century with a great iron cross hammered onto the binding with six good large nails. Another tome was a Greek manuscript of the Psalms with Byzantine illuminations representing King David and others scratching some horrible old harps as if their only hopes of salvation depend on the music they produce. <clears throat> 1,000 other Greek manuscripts contributed to excite my cupidity and cover me with dust, and I was nearly overwhelmed by a pro prodigious volume of the lives of the saints, which fell like an avalanche from the upper shelf, carrying whole legions of duodecimos in its train, which fluttered about in the dust and settled peaceably at last upon the floor. After this, I saw in another room a book which, oh, Sneed, look upon me as a sainted man, a kind of paragon of virtue among bibliomaniacs when I tell you that I did not steal a thick old quarto manuscript of the Gospels written in gold uncial letters in Greek in a silver gilt binding and illuminated by the ancient Romans of that ilk when the book was presented to the library by, I think, Honorius, the emperor of Rome, a certain king as the superior had uh, heard who lived some time ago at Constantinople. Afterwards, I got the old superior into his room and offered him no end of piastres for some of the books. But, Ariste, said the superior, you should have any of them. Only unluckily, a certain Englishman took several of them away about 15 years ago, 
and only gave the monastery a telescope in exchange, in consequence of which the late superior was degraded to the level of a common monk, and that is a trifle to what they will do to me if I sell you any of them at any price. But I will give you half a dozen of liqueur, said I. Liqueur, said he, ah, where is it? So I gave it him on the spot. This is excellent, said the superior. Yes, and nobody will know anything about it, said I. But there is a catalog, and you can't have any books at all. And so the old rogue drank the good Rosalio, and I did not get a book after all, though I went to Mount Sinai on purpose to get them. In fact, there is no chance of getting anything out of a Greek, so I trotted sulkily home again to Cairo with a little box of manna and two tables of stone on which Moses is to write the commandments for me when I get back to England. This is one of the many disappointments I have experienced here where nothing I have undertaken ever seems to succeed. I have got no antiquities of any consequence and am sore all over with a sort of boil which attacks people in Egypt and prevents my sleeping, sitting down, or doing anything else. Uh, so I hope some of my sins will be forgiven me in consideration thereof, for everybody has brought treasure out of Egypt except me. Instead of the Codex Sinaiticus, Curzon carried away a gazelle skin stuffed with dates and almonds and was left for Tischendorf to discover it in 1844. Curzon was able, as many collectors are not, to view his passionate bibliomania with some objectivity and perhaps even more rare, a considerable sense of humor. Obviously, the chase, to use the sporting term, appealed to him at least as much as the manuscripts themselves. In another letter, he gives an ecstatic account of the treasures in the library of St. John at Patmos. After describing in some detail 10 of the finest manuscripts, he continues, the library contains many other splendid books, but the 10 which I have mentioned surpass everything at Mount Athos or anywhere else except perhaps the Bulgarian manuscript which I have sent home for in its way it is not to be surpassed. Of course, I offered all my money and my other coat and my old hat and my little finger for all these literary wonders, but alas, all to no purpose. So I wrote to Lord Ponsonby in despair and begged him to declare war with the Sultan immediately if the books were not sold to me and to hang all the monks he could find till that desirable end was accomplished. I wish Queen Victoria could send for them. It is really a shame to leave them where they are, rotting in a monastic library where no one cares about them. If I do not get them, they will fall into the hands of the first Russian who cares to have them, <clears throat> for they do not stick at a trifle when they find anything worth having in these regions. <clears throat> With a de dejected countenance, I walked down the hill from the great monastery to the chapel over the cave where St. John wrote the Apocalypse. They showed me there a leaf of papyrus in the hieratic character, which they said was part of the original manuscript of the revelations in St. John's handwriting. This for many years has been adored by pilgrims as a relic of the, a relic of the evangelist, but on my explaining to the multitude that it could never have been written by St. John, seeing that it was 1,000 years older than his days, they let me take it away and I shall preserve it as a memorial of the extraordinary things I saw in the library of St. John at Patmos. 
On February 19, 1838, Curzon visited one of the most unusual and picturesque of the Coptic monasteries, the Convent of the Pulley, which is situated on the top of a cliff 200 feet above the Nile. The only approach to the monastery was from the river, and because of the high winds, the boat was unable to land, and Curzon was carried to shore on the shoulders of two of the reverend gentlemen who, naked, swam out to the boat like Newfoundland dogs, as Curzon put it. The access to the top of the cliff was through a cave in the base and 150 feet straight up a kind of chimney inside the rock. When, after the expenditure of some considerable labor, Curzon arrived at the top, he discovered a thriving community complete with women and children, gardens, and trees. The church into which he was conducted was very old. It was supposed to have been founded by the Empress Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, and partially subterranean. Although interested enough in the architecture to make a sketch and a floor plan, Curzon was, as usual, most concerned with seeing manuscripts, and he found 23 in Coptic with Arabic translations and a few wholly in Arabic. One was a large liturgy with an illuminated illustration of the Virgin and Christ, one of the few genuine specimens of Coptic art to survive. Curzon remarked that because the style and execution of the illumination were so poor, that perhaps it was just as well that they were so rare. After each of his jaunts to the Middle East, but particularly in 1835 and 1838, Curzon would arrive back in England with his latest acquisitions, and his envious fellow collectors would gather around to view the spoils. Quote, I have opened my box, he wrote to Sneed in 1835, <clears throat> of old manuscripts, papyri, and other sweetmeats. And then I went to Mr. Payne and Foss, one of the leading antiquarian book firms, and there was received with exceeding great glory. Later he remarks that, quote, this important bargain is not yet concluded. He was working out a trade with a dealer, and I walk about the street with the air of a man who is somebody and has a thing or two, especially a tome. Curzon was on the best of terms, it seems, with almost everyone he met, and even managed to charm Sir Thomas Phillips, one of the greatest collectors the world has known, but one whose temperament could only be politely described as irascible. Phillips had even attempted to effect a marriage between Curzon and his eldest daughter, a situation from which Curzon delicately extricated himself, assisted perhaps by the fact that he was in Egypt at the time the offer was made, while the young lady was in Worcestershire. Curzon was attracted by women and indeed was able to favorably compare them to manuscripts. Quote, I was at a prodigious ball yesterday at the Colosseum where I saw Mrs. Beaumont, who looked so very pretty that I have thought of nothing else ever since. I never saw an illuminated manuscript half so beautiful as she is. And uh, as for the pages of the first of Caxton's, the blackness of their letters are no more to be compared to the darkness of her eyes than the fine white margin is to the fairness of her skin. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant, also thy bed is green. N.B. I do not exactly know the truth of the last part of the verse, but I suppose it must be true because Solomon said so.
In addition to his travel accounts and the history of writing, Curzon submitted a few papers for publication to the Miscellanies of the Philobiblon Society, a bibliophilic club to which he belonged that held breakfast meetings, better than cheaper than the Roxburgh Club, he, uh, in his opinion. In the volume for 1860-61 appeared his History of Printing in China and Europe, based partly on letters he had received from the Earl of Elgin. Quote, the Earl of Elgin has returned from his second successful and wonderful expedition to China and Japan. He has informed me that he has taken steps to secure some specimens of very ancient Chinese printed books for the British Museum. Although I am surprised that a nobleman of such distinguished abilities should not immediately have perceived the expediency of adding some of these volumes to the collections of members of the Philobiblon Society, etc., etc. <clears throat> Curzon's only other excursion into print was as the joint author of The Lay of the Purple Falcon, issued an edition of 30 copies in 1847. Uh, one of them is in the collections of uh, the uh, Rare Book Department of Columbia University Library. <clears throat> as the preface explains, the first canto, and I imagine the beginning of the second, were originally written by Reginaldus Episcopus C. in Partibus Infidelum. The rest was composed by one Robert the Rhymer, a cunning clerk, of whom no further account is given. <clears throat> the first named was Reginald Heber, Bishop of Calcutta, <clears throat> and perhaps better known as the author of From Greenland's Icy Mountains. He was also the half-brother of Richard Heber, the great collector. Uh, it, that is, the lay of the purple falcon, begins, It is a king, both fine and fell, that heights Sir Claudius Pantagruel, the finest and fellest, more or less, of all the kings in heathenness. And ends, uh, Of a man-child of seven years, each had a slice, the nose and ears. The tables with their burthens groaned, and as the tankard passed around, first was the heathen proverb heard that virtue is its own reward. Thirty copies was probably enough. <laughs> his collection of manuscripts and printed books was left by Curzon to his daughter, Daria, and the manuscripts were, by her, placed on deposit in the British Museum. When she died in 1917, they were bequeathed outright to the museum and divided between the Department of Manuscripts and the Department of Oriental Books and Manuscripts. Today they represent, along with the other Coptic and Syriac manuscripts collected for the museum by Tatum, Curitan, and others, the most extensive and most important gathering of this kind of material in existence. In the obituary note of Curzon, which appeared in the Philobiblon Society Miscellanies, volume 14, 1872-76, and probably written by Sneed, uh, Curzon's character is described as founded on sincerity. All concealment of thought was foreign to his nature, and his friends remarked on his gaiety, originality, and frankness. I have dubbed Curzon the knight-errant of bibliophily because of his obvious fondness for things medieval 
and because his approach to collecting manuscripts and books strikes me as similar to the romantic notions of rescuing damsels in distress. He has also been called the Elgin of the Athenite libraries, and there are certainly some parallels between his career and that of the rescuer of the Parthenon frieze. Coptic fragments, let alone substantial manuscripts, are not allowed export legally from Egypt today. The questions of replevin of cultural artifacts have assumed serious political overtones, but of course these overtones were present when the objects were rescued as well. The migration of the Codex Sinaiticus from St. Catherine's to the court of the Tsar of Russia was caused by a political decision, and its acquisition by the British Museum in 1931 was also a politically motivated event. Whether Elgin-like or not, Curzon did almost certainly save from destruction a number of manuscripts utterly neglected in the Near East of the mid-19th century. Some of his methods may seem peculiar or even reprehensible to a modern collector, but he was, after all, a man of his time. The armorial book stamp used by Curzon contains his family motto, quote, let Curzon hold what Curzon held. The Curzons no longer hold Parham or the collections of the Honorable Robert, 14th Baron Zuge. He continues, however, to hold the close and appreciative attention of those who peruse Middle Eastern travel accounts of the 19th century, and he holds the admiration and, I think, affection of all who are in any way engaged in the noble pursuits of bibliophilia. Thank you. not been able to identify them. I'm sure uh, one could uh, probably guess which one it was, but you know, who left the telescope? Uh, I, I don't know, I'm afraid. Uh, it, it had a powerful effect, uh, however. Uh, uh, what Tischendorf did when he got there was just be very much more persistent, and uh, his persistency extended to, in fact, uh, persuading the Tsar that uh, this was something that really his court ought to have, and the Tsar uh, threatened to wipe them out, basically. Uh, uh, or he exchanged, in effect, the Codex Sinaiticus for protection. Sure. No, no, not not directly. Uh, there are there is a family connection, but there was no direct uh, relationship. And indeed, I don't know that they ever even met. May have, but I, there's no record of that. Yeah, a little later. Yeah, yeah. The uh, title descended in the female line. In fact, uh, there's. Uh, I believe still a Lord Curzon, uh, sorry, Lord Zuch. Uh, 
Yes. I was just going to comment that uh, I'm sure other people have been there also, but those who haven't, uh, the library St. Catherine's uh, about 10 years ago, and uh, one could not see manuscripts uh, except for several over out. On the other hand, at the, um, the library at the, at the um, Hopkins at the Monastery at the top of the mountain there, it's a marvelous library. Um, and I remember air conditioned in order to maintain the uh, proper community books, um, many of which um, are displayed and well marked. Um, mm -hmm. and they're, they're in a large room that's been beautiful to store. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the you know, scholars of Oh yeah. Oh, things have changed certainly. Uh, yes. Yeah. Oh, one could use uh, Curzon both his books. Uh, uh, you could follow him around uh, still. Yeah. Did you 